morning. You can all hear me, yeah? So, as Dave said, if you haven't met me, I'm Denise. That's my husband, Eric, there with our two kiddos. And um, if you don't recognize us, it's not because you're inconsiderate. It's because we've been worshiping online for the past year, so we haven't actually been in person. Actually, if you ask my son, he'll tell you that the name of our church is uh, RenewLinwood.Church. So <laughs> here we are. We're in person at RenewLinwood.Church, and I think it's kind of blowing my kids' minds. And um, doubly so because we're here during Advent, right? It's kind of a special time. Although I think in their minds, Christmas is still quite a bit bigger than Advent, um, which was true for me as a kid, too. I think it's true for all of us. But, you know, the older I get, um, the more Advent just seems to connect. That idea that we're waiting. There's something about that that feels just kind of real. Something that rings true in the idea um, that things aren't quite right. That there's something missing. And the more of life that I experience, I think the more deeper I feel that longing. Which is why... I think waiting is maybe the word that best captures what it means to be a follower of a Jesus, right? There's a sense that something has happened, that a spiritual reality has changed through the resurrection, and yet at the same time, we recognize that the world is still broken, that our lived experience hasn't really been made right. And I think there's something about Advent that sort of lets us acknowledge that reality almost makes it sacred. I think that's why it's so easy for me to connect with the crowds that are coming out to John in the passage from today. Because there's a longing inherent in what they're doing. There's a sense that something's wrong and that, that, that something is missing. And we don't have to dig very deep to understand what might be wrong with the world during John's ministry. Um, we know during this time that Israel has more or less been colonized by Rome. And as Dave read, there's a power-sharing agreement where there's no fewer than eight leaders, all of those leaders that he read about at the beginning of this passage, um, both Roman and Jewish, and all to various degrees willing to exploit the people under them for their own benefit. And the society that exists under these circumstances is a cruel one, right? We read about it in the Gospels, a world where religious leaders profit off of pilgrims in the temple, and tax collectors purchase the right to rob their own people, and leaders can behead their critics with impunity. It's a society that's carefully constructed to benefit those at the top at the expense of those at the bottom. And so when John shows up in the wilderness, the people coming out to him are experiencing the deep uneve, unease of living in a society that's unjust and oppressive and violent. It's not the idyllic land flowing with milk and honey that Israel wanted. It's a world where things are broken and people are hurting and they're hurting one another. And all of these people are coming out to John with this sense of, discontent of longing for things to be made right. 
And honestly, I've really wrestled with how John responds. He's clearly not running a seeker-sensitive church. He is pretty mean, right? He's not welcoming or compassionate. He calls them a brood of vipers, or another translation says children of snakes. Come to our church, children of snakes. It's not, doesn't, doesn't ring well. Um, he tells them that their Jewish ancestry means nothing. He tells them that they're going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And it's a little bit difficult to hear really violent language from this messenger that we think of as preparing the way for the kingdom of God, right? This world that is supposed to be where all the things that are wrong are made right, where there's justice and mercy. It's really unsettling to hear John talk like that. But as I wrestled with this text, one of the things that I started to realize is that maybe what's at the root of that really strong language is the simple reality that the kingdom of God is entirely inconsistent with the normal way of being in this unjust Roman society that these people are coming out of. The people who are coming to John have lived their whole lives in a world in which the powerful are rewarded and the weak are exploited, and success comes through violence and cruelty and indifference to the humanity of others. And from childhood, really, people learn that you either play by the rules of this game or you lose. You climb the ladder because there's a ladder. And you create security for your family by any means that you can. You appease those with more power and you dehumanize those with less power because that's what the world tells you it takes to survive. And because it's the water that everyone is swimming in, most of the time, you don't even notice that you're doing it. It just becomes normalized. It's the way things are. And John says, wake up. You can't live by the rules of this world if you're seeking a new one. You can't have power and privilege and wealth and use it for your own gain and tell me you're seeking the kingdom of God. You can't say that you want God to create justice and end oppression and bring about peace while you're profiting off of injustice and complicit in oppression and operating according to a system of violence. You can't tell me that you want to follow Jesus at the same time as you're wounding the people that Jesus loves. So John doesn't mince words. Because I think there's too much at stake. The crowds coming out to him to repent are so blinded by the violence of their world, that wound sort of runs so deep that they don't even really understand what repentance means. Before they're ready for grace or the kingdom of God, they first need to reckon with the reality of the injustice that flows through their very way of being. Might not be a popular opinion, but I think the Western church today might be in a similar place of reckoning. Over the past few years, a lot of us, myself included, have started to see things that we didn't see before, to notice some of the things that are broken. We've woken up to our own failings and to those of our community, and we're seeing the ugliness that maybe we didn't used to see before because of the water that we all swam in. We're seeing how our understanding of the gospel was shaped by 
individualism and nationalism and political tribalism and racism and patriarchy and materialism and so many things all at once that sometimes it's hard to even believe that there was something good and true in this thing called Christianity. And so often lately I find myself asking the question that the crowds were asking of John. What do we do? What then do we do? What do I do when I thought I was following Jesus, but I cared a great deal more about my daily quiet time than I did about the people in my city with nowhere to sleep? What do I do when it turns out the people that I thought knew the most about the gospel actually knew a lot more about effective marketing than they did about grace? What do I do when I thought I was living a life of discipleship, but really I was living the American dream dressed up in biblical clothing? And I'm looking around for really complex answers about how to discern the truth and figure out which voices I should choose to hear, how to find the the real Jesus within all of the false versions that we've made in our own image. I love John's answer because it's so simple. He says, if you have two shirts, give to the one who has none. And if you have food, share that. If you're a tax collector or a soldier, don't use your power to exploit others. In other words, live justly. Right? That's what repentance looks like. People who are preparing their hearts for Jesus seek justice. They're no longer willing to live by the rules of a system that accepts inequity as just the way things are, that gives value and meaning to some lives and not others. People who are part of God's kingdom seek justice. And this feels like grace to me because it's so simple. John's message tells us when you aren't sure what it looks like to follow Jesus, start with justice. Just move in the direction of justice. And when you can't figure out who the people of God are, look for the people who care about the marginalized and the hungry and the hurting. And when all of the teachers seem like false prophets, listen to the people who refuse to normalize suffering. When you're lost and you just don't know which way to turn, John says repent and seek justice. And I think it's worth noting that when John calls for repentance, he's not particularly interested in the emotions of the penitent. He's not talking about whether they're weeping or or falling to their knees. We tend to think about repentance as an internal dynamic, right? A transaction between me and God where I show the depth of my remorse. But John's entire focus is an outward reality on how to relate to the world around us. You see, when I harm God's children, I think he's a lot more interested in my no longer causing harm than he is in my tears. I think sometimes repentance looks like weeping, but I think it always looks like justice. The key question isn't how do I feel, right? It's it's how do I live? And here, I think, is where things sometimes go wrong. Uh, One of the reasons that I think the church 
like big C church, universal church, not renew specifically. One of the reasons that the church has gotten so off track is that we have a tendency to talk about justice in really vague terms. We all want to acknowledge that God calls his people to justice, but then we kind of go home and define justice on our own terms. And I think we usually do it in ways that aren't particularly constraining to our chosen lifestyle or even our political leanings. Not because we're awful people, but because we're people. And this world is unjust, and it's really hard to figure out how to live well inside of it. And I think it's just human nature to try to um, kind of remove that cognitive dissonance, to feel okay about the way that we're living, even if that sometimes means we end up justifying things that we probably shouldn't justify. So I think it's important when we talk about justice to talk about specifics. And in this case, John is pretty specific. We don't have to do a lot here to understand how it might apply to us, except for ha perhaps to let ourselves read the words as they're written and not try to um, translate them into something more palatable. Here's what I mean. Uh, John says that the one who has two shirts should give to the one who has none. So we're going to do a little math problem here. I know some of you thought 10 a.m. on Sunday, you're safe from math, but here we are. Really easy math. Uh, if you have two shirts and you give one to me, what fraction of your shirts have you given away? You're all stumped. In the back. Half, right? Yeah, you've given me half. Not 10% or a tithe, not the stuff in the garage that you were going to give away anyway or the clothes that your kids have grown out of, you've given me half. And maybe more importantly, you've given enough to create equity, right? Everyone who needed a shirt has a shirt, and nobody has excess. Somehow that's part of what justice looks like. And the command to the tax collector gives us another layer. In this context, um, the tax collector is a Jew who bids on the right to collect taxes for Rome from other Jews. And anything that he collects over that bid that he has to repay, that's his to keep, right? That's profit. And John is saying, don't take any profit. Take what you need to cover the bid and that's it because no amount of profit earned in the service of an unjust system is justified. This one's an even easier math problem. Are you ready? If I rob my neighbor, what portion of what I've robbed from them is rightfully mine? Nothing, right? There's nothing that I can take if my means are unjust that is justified. And there's a parallel implication in the command to the soldiers. We get the impression that whatever type of soldier um, John is talking about is probably not paid very well, right? And so extortion is probably pretty normal and maybe even expected. And John's message is normal doesn't mean just. Expected doesn't mean justified. Regardless of how the system around you operates, you alone are accountable for whether you contribute integrity or violence to that system. And if we take these very specific examples and we begin to think about them in our own context, it raises a lot of questions. 
if the one who has two shirts should give one away, what does that mean for those of us with a closet full of clothes and a fridge full of food? What's our obligation, particularly right now during a pandemic that's drastically increased global poverty and hunger and malnutrition? What does justice look like there? And if tax collectors should reject profit earned in the service of an injustice, what does that mean about the ways that I earn money? What does that mean about where I work or how I invest my money or the ways in which I benefit from societal bias or historical injustice? And if the soldiers are told that justice isn't defined by what's normal in our society, what does that mean about the ways that I engage in the marketplace or the public sphere? Do the places where I shop and the things that I buy and the quantities that I buy, do those contribute justice or injustice to the world around me? And what's my responsibility when, for example, corporations say that below poverty wages are normal? And the government tells us that immigration detention is standard. And political leaders conclude that a certain amount of child poverty is just expected. When we really examine them, these ideas can start to feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? At least they do for me. And I think that's particularly true for those of us who grew up in a capitalistic society because when we grow up in that culture, we grow up with a sense of ownership over things, right? That's sort of the central value. I'm taught that I'm entitled to the things that I earn and nobody else has any claim on those things. I'm taught that the markets reward hard work and we all have a chance to succeed. So even if there are inequities or injustices in our system, they never infringe upon my right to earn a living and to use my resources as I see fit. But the kingdom of God is in a capitalistic society, right? The rules of this world that we inhabit and the things that we know to be true about wealth and property and ownership don't apply. In the kingdom of God, people who are hungry have food. And people who are naked have clothing and no perceived value ever trumps justice. And to be honest with you, I really haven't figured out what this means in my own life yet. As a middle class white American, I know that I have a lot of catching up to do when it comes to understanding justice. And though our family has put thought and prayer into what it means to, to sort of seek justice in the ways that we live, I know we're not there yet. I know it's not just about economic justice. I know that the ways that we assign value as a society, the, the privileges afforded to those of a certain nationality and education and gender, to those who are able-bodied or neurotypical, I know that doesn't look like justice. I know that seeking the kingdom of God means choosing not to be content with a world that values some categories of people and not others. And I know that that kind of justice is messy. Where people 
shaped by our own brokenness, whose sense of what's right and good is so distorted by the murky waters that we swim in that sometimes we can't even tell if we're doing harm or doing good. So of course we're going to get it wrong. Of course our own selfishness and our greed and our individualism, our learned biases, those are going to get it in the way. But despite our limitations, I think there's a posture there, a posture of repentance that John is inviting us to embody. A way of living into the values of the kingdom with greater and greater authenticity and filtering our decisions through that lens. Asking ourselves, in the spaces where I experience privilege, do I engage with entitlement or humility? In what ways have I become comfortable with the idea that some deserve more and some deserve less? Where in my life have I justified or ignored or taken for granted the suffering of others? And am I listening when the Holy Spirit calls me to repentance? And when I hear that call, what does repentance really look like? What does it mean to repent authentically, not just in word or in deed, or word or in thought? That kind of repentance isn't cheap. It's heavy and it's costly and it's a little bit overwhelming to imagine. But there's good news in John's invitation. And the good news is Advent. Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of justice. And the gospel tells us it's coming. It's coming, and it's coming isn't dependent upon our own strength or weakness. And the good news is that in the meantime, repentance is possible and grace is real, and we're baptized with a Holy Spirit that isn't content to let us be as we are, but compels us and empowers us to be the kind of people who seek God's justice. The good news is that the Jesus who came to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is here now and coming again in a fullness that will wipe away racism and sexism and nationalism and ableism and ageism and every other ism that would deny the humanity of some for the benefit of others. The good news is that no matter how many ways we fail to live up to our calling as the community of Christ, no matter how much this world distorts our perspectives and, and warps our sense of how we should live, the reality of Christ the King who is just and merciful and faithful and holy remains unchanged. So we repent and we wrestle uncomfortably at times with justice and we wait we cling to that hope of Advent and we hold on to the promise that the God whom we worship is fully and irrevocably and ineffably good. And that seems like a good place to land this morning with the goodness of God. When the people came out to John, they were drawn by that good God and they were baptized in water to show that they were sort of turning away from that unjust society that they've been living in toward the kingdom of God. And after Jesus' resurrection, 
Christians returned to that idea of baptism kind of with similar meaning, right? As a way of marking a transition into the kingdom of God, saying that's, that's where our identity is, right? In the last few years, I spent a lot of time, for lack of a better word, deconstructing and reconstructing my faith. And all of a sudden, I find myself longing to go back to my baptism, right, to sort of the beginning of that journey of faith. And I want to remember the commitment that I made to Jesus there. I, I want to reaffirm that I belong to that kingdom. And I think most importantly, I want to acknowledge that after everything that I've seen and all of the questions that I have, that the Jesus who drew me to that water is still good, right? He always has been. So I thought that this morning I'd invite any of you who um, have a similar tug to remember your baptism or to sort of engage with water. And it's okay if you don't. Um, I wasn't there until pretty recently. But uh, there's a bowl of no water yet. We're going to do this COVID style. So there's an empty bowl. And um, there's some cups there on the side. And if you'd like, I invite you to come up during the next few minutes and just pour out a cup. And if you've been baptized, use it as a space to remember your baptism, to think about the commitment you made, think about sort of what that event signified, what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, and to remember the goodness of the God who drew you to that water. And if you haven't been baptized, I invite you to come up and pour out a cup and just reflect on the water as a symbol of repentance and renewal, God's ability to bring about justice, to kind of make the murky water that we swim in clean. Or if God put something else on your heart, of course, engage with that. Um, if you're joining us online, uh, you're welcome to have your own cup or bowl, and you don't have to worry about COVID at home, so you can actually touch the water if you'd like. Um, or if you want to just reflect, we'll have an image on the screen that'll give you some space to do that. So I'll pray for us, and then um, you can come whenever you feel ready. God, I feel like the last few years I have so many more answers, uh, questions, than I do answers. I feel like at sometimes it's, it's hard to even figure out what are the right questions to be asking, let alone what's the right thing to be doing. But I know that justice is of you. I know it's messy, and I don't know how to figure it out, but I know that it's yours. And so, God, I invite you to give us the courage and the wisdom to seek justice, to learn from you, to hear your Holy Spirit, to trust you when you invite us to do scary and uncomfortable things. And God, to just reaffirm in our hearts that you are good, that you've always been good, that you will always be good, and that justice is coming. Amen. <clears throat>